Hello. Hi. Welcome to a spooky Halloween special episode of Truly Fabulously Monstrous. A podcast about true crime and weird stuff. I am half of your host, Hattie James. I am your other half of your host, Ace. Hi, Ace. Hi, Hattie. How are you? I'm good. Yeah. That's it. No notes. (laughs) 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 Or rather, no notes on how I'm doing. Many notes on the thing I'm going to talk about. (laughs) Good, good. So in this episode, you're going to be telling us a special Halloween episode, and we will upload it on Halloween. So by the time you listen to this, lovely listeners, it's either on or after Halloween. Yeah, spooky Halloween! It's interrupting your regularly scheduled for the like 20 millionth time this season. (laughs) A lot of updates, a lot of updates this season about stuff and things. But um, yeah, so I thought like it would be fun to kick off this Halloween episode. Uh, I have a story about like my, so okay, so you know how that the Bo Burnham was like an inside was really really popular this summer and he had that song problematic and on it he goes uh like i'm problematic when i was 17 on halloween i dressed up as aladdin was he 17 or was he seven well a couple lyrics now (laughs) when i was 17 on halloween i dressed up as aladdin okay so (laughs) that song when that lyric came it like unlocked a memory i have two can i just tell you two uh in a row consecutive really awful Halloween costumes uh, when, yes. I, when I was seven. I'll tell you the one when I was seven and then I'll tell you the my favorite, this one's awful one from when I was six. So I was seven in 1998 and I really, really, really loved Disney. Like you do. Like you, you do. You were a child. And children and love Disney. <laughs> my mom went up to my brother and was like, oh, Hattie's brother, what do you want to be? for uh for halloween and he was really into the gargoyles show yeah i always forget that show exists yeah so he said i want to be gargoyle so they went and they found him the costume and he was like it was like a gray muscle suit with like (laughs) the the foam gargoyle mask uh then they said hattie what do you want to be and my seven-year-old in the 90s not realizing how this could be problematic went i want to be pocahontas and my parents, as it was the 90s, they let me be Pocahontas. And I had the Pocahontas dress and the long black wig. And I did not darken my skin, but I had very naturally tan skin uh, at the time. Uh, so there are pictures in my picture box of my brother as, as the gargoyle standing next to me, smiling ear to ear, dressed as a Native American. That, okay. Yeah, I was going to say... Um... Because I was also going to tell my story of, like, weird, problematic Halloween costumes of the past. Cool. It was not based, it was not because of Pocahontas. It was because we lived in Alaska. Oh, no. Yeah, uh, and my sister and I have both worn this costume. Sure, there's pictures of it. My mom, I do not remember the origin of why we wanted this costume, if it was for, like, a school thing. But my mom who like sewed a lot of things by hand, like went to the library and did all this research and made a pretty historically accurate native Inuit costume 
And there are pictures of my sister and I at each at different points in our lives living in Alaska wearing this costume. And now I look back on that and go, that was not okay. I mean, mild bonus points for it not being a, hey, let's just go buy a generic Native American costume. Like my mom was like, I'm going to do like make this as like historically accurate as possible and do research about it and make it. But we were still two very white people. (laughs) Being like, this is my Halloween costume. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not okay. Unfortunately. I think, I think since then I was either like, I want to be a fairy princess or I want to be a vampire or the one year when I was just like, I want to be Fred Durst. <laughs> Actually, I okay. think that was the worst costume I've ever had. I wanted to be Fred Durst. Not Robert Durst, right? No, Fred Durst, as in Fred <laughs> Durst, the frontline singer from the 1990s band, early aughts band, Limp Biscuit. Well, um, unfortunately, being Fred Durst or um, you dressing as a historically accurate Inuit or me dressing as Pocahontas, in my opinion, are not as bad as my 1997 costume. And I'm just going to settle in a little closer. I'm going to tell you the story. I was six years old. It was October, 1997. Hattie's brother, what do you want to be for Halloween? And I don't remember what he wanted to be that year. He was seven, probably something like Batman. I don't know. I don't remember. Uh, But Hattie, what do you want to be? I said, I want to be Barbie. So my mom was like, yes. Okay, perfect. I'm going to go all out. She went and somehow got a hold of like this beautiful pink like ball gown and I got the ball gown and we put my hair on a hairnet and then my hair in a wig like this beautiful long big teased out blonde wig I suddenly know where this is going (laughs) okay well and I got to wear makeup for the first time and I got little pink lipstick and like blue shimmery eyeshadow and we went to the my hometown's elementary school's Halloween party and everyone was giving me dirty looks. And I being six thought it was because of the wig. And I didn't know about this story till years later. So the next day when it was actually Halloween and my mom came up to me and she had bought like a Barbie mask with like the blonde outline hair and said, instead of the wig, why don't you wear the mask? I had a complete meltdown. Cause I'm like, I don't, I don't want to be Barbie. I don't want to wear a Barbie's mask. I don't want to wear Barbie's face. I want to be Barbie. Complete meltdown. I don't want to wear that. Barbie's face. <laughs> yeah. This is I, my Barbie skin suit. I don't want to wear my Barbie skin suit. <laughs> yeah. So uh, to, to just give you this perspective of probably everyone else chaperoning their child to the, elementary school's Halloween party. Uh, My mom walked in with my brother dressed however he was dressed. I don't remember what his costume was. And her youngest child dressed in a pink pageant dress with a pageant style blonde wig 10 months after John Benet Ramsey was found dead in her parents' basement. Oh my God. So every adult thought that my mom... mom. Every You're adult. Who are you? <laughs> oh my god! What was your best Halloween costume? I don't remember any other Halloween. Costume. Okay, I was gonna say probably I I have a very right after the first Men in Black movie came out, my sister and I decided we wanted to be Men in Black. We, it was the one and only time my sister and I did like a matching costume, and we were Men in Black agents, and like, um. A lot of people, like we'd not, a lot of old people, we'd like knock on their door and be like, trick or treat. And they'd be like, oh, I love the Blues Brothers. 
because we were wearing black suits with black ties and black sunglasses. But my dad had made us, he used like paper towel tubes and a cereal box wrapped in tinfoil to make like a blaster. And then we'd Uh written like MIB on it in big letters. So we were like, no, we're the men in black. (laughs) And then I think uh, that was my best costume when I was a kid. So we should get to your Halloween story. My Halloween story. Yeah, I don't know what, well, okay, it's not really a crime. I guess it kind of counts as a weird, I don't know. I don't know what it counts as, but it's probably one of my favorite Halloween stories. I've written so many papers, I've written three research papers about it at this point. One was for a summer class that I took. It was like a film theory and history class, which is weird that I wrote about this because this has nothing to do with film. Um, And then I wrote about it for a class in our college for um, the the English teacher that everybody loved. The very first class I ever took with him, one of the final papers, we had to pick a topic in history and then write a research paper about it. And this was what I picked. So I was like, yeah, yeah. And then I wrote a third paper about it just for fun. So today I am going to tell you about the Panic Broadcast, a.k.a. the 1938 radio broadcast of War of the Worlds. Yes. <laughs> hey. So in 1938, the CBS radio station. Oh, and remember, like, OK, back in the late 30s, like back in the early days of radio, there were like four radio stations there was cbs there was nbc and there were two other ones that i do not remember the name of (laughs) okay but they were not cbs or nbc in 1938 the cbs radio station hosted a weekly hour-long anthology drama uh program that was created and written by one orson wells and which starred performances by wells's own mercury theater company hence the name of the show the mercury theater on the air and the show began airing in july of 1938 and it featured dramatized performances of well-known works of literature performed by the members of the mercury theater company and enhanced by sound effects from the cbs sound effects team the first production of mercury theater on the air was on july 11th 1938 and it was an adaptation of bram stoker's dracula other productions that year included Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, John Buchan's The 39 Steps, Alexandre Dumas's The Count of Monte Cristo, a production of The Immortal Sherlock Holmes, uh, Jules Verne's Around the World in 80 Days, uh, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, and others. There were more. Those were just some of the more well-known ones. Uh, however, the broadcast that made the Mercury Theater on the air famous and cemented its place in history forever was its adaptation of H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds, which aired on the CBS radio channel on Sunday, October 30th, 1938. So the hour-long broadcast began, as all the other broadcasts had, with uh, the announcement of what the story the following program would be telling. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated station presents Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. That was followed by the opening theme music of the Mercury Theater on the air. And then, ladies and gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theater and star of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. After which, Orson Welles proceeds to read a monologue that closely follows the opening monologue of the H.G. Wells novel. However, it has been modified, moving the setting of the story from late 1800s England to 1938 America. Okay. 
So the for the next 20 minutes of this radio play, the story was presented in the style like a typical evening radio program that was being interrupted by a series of breaking news bulletins. So it starts out, it sounds like it's kind of like an orchestral presentation of, quote, live music. And so the first breaking news bulletin describes a series of odd explosions observed on the surface of Mars by telescope observers, followed by a seemingly unrelated report of an unidentified object falling to Earth on a farm in Grover's Mill, New Jersey, and then goes back to the orchestral, quote, live music. The next uh, report Bolton interrupts to give a live report from Grover's Mill, where officials and curious onlookers have grouped around the unusual object when Martians emerge from a cylindrical craft and begin attacking the crowd using a heat ray. And all of this is being described by a panicked reporter at the scene until his, quote, live audio feed cuts off. And then this is followed by a series of rapidly breaking news updates detailing a devastating alien invasion taking place all across the country in all the major cities and how efforts of the U.S. military forces are unable to halt the advance of the Martian, quote, invasion. And uh, this portion of the show kind of reaches its climax when one final live report from Manhattan rooftop as the Martian war machines release clouds of poisonous smoke across the city as New Yorkers attempt to flee and are overcome by toxic clouds. The reporter eventually coughs and his feed falls silent. And the last thing you hear is a lone ham radio operator calling, is anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone? Isn't there anyone? Before the program cuts to the first break uh, 38 minutes after the introduction. So that's like 38 minutes of just breaking news bulletins and aliens. Yep. Are so during the intermission between the show segments, the announcer once again comes on to inform the audience that they are listening to a scripted radio adaptation of H.G. Wells's novel, The War of the Worlds. And then we cut to the second half of the show, which has shifted from live breaking news style to that of a conventional radio drama. And it's now the story of a lone survivor played by Orson Welles as he navigates the aftermath of the invasion and the Martian occupation of Earth. And the final segment of the show concludes the same as the novel does with the revelation that the Martians have no built up immunity to Earth diseases and they are defeated by microbes. And then the broadcast then concludes with an out-of-character speech by Orson Welles thanking people for listening to their, like, Halloween prank show. That announcement was then followed by the main announcer reminding the audience for a third time that they had been listening to a scripted adaptation of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds presented by Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air. So that's three times when they come in and say, just a reminder, this is fake. This is a fictional radio <laughs> broadcast. None of this is real. <laughs> so why do we remember this one broadcast out of the dozens that this company made and that it was aired by CBS? That would be because apparently some people thought it was real. In those people's defense, I never listened to the beginning of a show. And if you're just like shooting the shit, not paying attention, and the second this is an adaptation was after all the panic-inducing <laughs> shit. Yeah, so the 1938 broadcast of War of the Worlds has become famous for being the show that tricked some of its listeners into thinking there was an actual alien invasion taking place. And that was due to the breaking news style present. It was, I think, one of the first instances of breaking news style presentation being used in a fictional setting. And the CBS sound effects team, Orson Welles was very notorious for being very peculiar about the sound effects in the radio plays that they did. Like, he was insistent that they be as, as realistic and as convincing. So um, I said their first production was Bram Stoker's Dracula. 
the sound effects team was trying to perfect the sound of a stake being driven through the heart of a vampire. Yeah, gross. So they presented Orson Welles. They were like, here is a cabbage. And here is us hitting this cabbage with a sharpened broomstick. To which Welles replied, it was, quote, much too leafy. And that they should, (laughs) quote... Drill a hole into the cabbage and fill it with water because we need to hear the blood. <laughs> Unfortunately, he didn't like how that sounded either. So eventually, they took a watermelon and hit, they they Gallaghered a watermelon, <laughs> and apparently that squishy <laughs> sound was the sound that they needed of a sharpened stake piercing the heart of a vampire. So gross. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so like the, the sound effects team for the CBS, like radios, the studio, they were they were on point when it came to the sound effects. Good Foley work. Um, so the first indication that something was a mess while the show was airing was during that first segment, the CBS supervisor on the show received a phone call in the control room, after which he returned and he was like, okay, hey, we need to interrupt the show with another reminder that this is fictional. However, by the time that like that order reached the studio, it was already 38 minutes in and they were approaching the first scheduled break anyway. So they're like, eh, we'll just wait. <laughs> One of the actors in the show, Stefan Schneibel, calls sitting in the anteroom after finishing his part of the on-air performance when uh, a few policemen started to enter the studio and after a bit the room was full of policemen and there was kind of a struggle taking place between the policemen and then the CBS executives as the CBS executives were trying to prevent the policemen from entering the broadcasting booth and stopping the show. The switchboard of the studio was lit up with more calls than it could handle of people calling to being like hey CBS are aliens really invading or are you messing with us? CBS? Hello? Hello, CBS? Um, The press was already screaming about the widespread devastation, quote, widespread devastation caused by the broadcast. Uh, John Hausman, who was co-writer of the Mercury Theater, uh, recalls that he was hustled out of the studio and they were locked in a small back office on another floor. Here we sat, incommunicado, while network employees were busily collecting, destroying, or locking up all the scripts and records of the broadcast. They didn't do a very good job. There's lots of recordings and scripts out there. (laughs) Finally, the press was let loose upon us, ravening for horror. How many deaths had we heard of? Implying that they knew of thousands. What did we know of the fatal stampede in Jersey Hall? Implying that it was one of many. What about the traffic deaths? The ditches must have been choked with corpses. What about the suicides? Haven't you heard about the one on Riverside Drive? It was all quite vague in my memory, and it was all quite terrible. (laughs) So that's the press showing up being like, hey, 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 what do you know about all the horrible devastation that your recording is causing? Newspaper reporters, photographers, and police were crowded around the building as the broadcast ended. So the cast left the CBS building through the rear entrance and headed to the Mercury Theater to attend an all-night rehearsal of Downton's death. However... (laughs) 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 We just caused all this devastation. Okay, back to rehearsal. Yep. After midnight, Wells was informed that the War of the Worlds was being flashed in Times Square, and when they left the theater, the lighted bulletin that circled the New York Times building read, quote, Orson Welles causes panic. <laughs> if you, uh, if you're oh, sorry, that's now, has- on my, that's now on my bucket list. I want to 
I want to go to Times Square one day and just see like Hattie James causes panic. It's on my bucket <laughs> list. I need to cause widespread panic broadcast on the marquee at Times Square. <laughs> Good bucket list. If you have a subscription or your local library has a subscription to the New York Times and you can access, uh, what do they call their vault? It's like the Times, arc, whatever they're the Times they call archive. Their, yeah, whatever they call their archive. You can access the original New Year's Times article that was published um, the next day, the headline of which reads, Radio listeners panic, taking war drama as fact. Many flee homes to escape gas raids from Mars. Phone calls swamp police at broadcast of Wells Fantasy. And the article goes on to talk about at least, quote, a score of adults requiring medical treatment for shock and hysteria and about the mass hysteria that swept the streets of New York and New Jersey, causing people to flee their homes. Um, A score is 20, right? Yes. Okay. We now know that the, quote, mass hysteria and widespread panic that was reported and has taken on almost urban legend level status was very, very likely greatly over-exaggerated by the media at the time. Oh, boo. (laughs) That's not (laughs) to say that people didn't panic. People, yes, there was, people did panic. There were a lot of people that missed that opening uh, introduction. One of the most accepted reasons for why a lot of people missed the introduction is because on the NBC channel, a lot of people had been listening to the Chase and Sanborn Hour, on which was um, Edgar Bergen and his uh, fun little puppet, uh, Charlie McCarthy. If, if you've ever watched anything with them, they were on The Muppet Show one time. <laughs> That's the extent of my knowledge of Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. So, you know, like what happens when you're, you like, you're listening to the end of one program, you may miss the few minutes introduction of something on mm-hmm. another station before you switch over. So that would explain why at least some of them had missed that. What time did this air? Uh, eight o'clock. So a lot of people might have been putting their kids to bed. Also that. Because eight yep. o'clock is a very common bedtime for kids. So you put your kids to bed. The kids don't go to bed immediately. It's 8.05 when you tune into CBS to listen to your, your favorite program. Mm-hmm. So on the night in question, uh, yeah, there was some level of panic by the people that had missed that initial introduction for whatever reason. And who may not have kept listening through the whole program when the two other similar announcements were made. But what, what constituted the panic was likely an increase in phone calls to police departments, newspapers, and to CBS itself. Um, History.com's This Day in History talks about the Trenton, New Jersey Police Department fielding over 2,000 calls in under two hours. I mean, yeah, that's probably when you're hearing this kind of thing, if you've missed that thing where it's fiction and you're hearing this, the first thing you're going to do is like, if you're a person who's interested in like fact checking stuff, you're going to call and the authority. knowing if you need to evacuate. Yeah. Like if you're like, oh, I'm hearing this thing on the news, I better call like the people in charge to be like, hey, I'm hearing this on the radio. How panicked should I be? And if the people like at the police station, they're not listening to the radio because they're working, they're at work they're working they're like what about aliens so like they don't know what's going on they're like what are you talking about aliens and what weird okay so the police don't know what's going on and now they're probably embarrassed because they're like they made us look stupid (laughs) (laughs) so the police are having that like uptick in calls from panicked people that would also explain why the police are showing up at the broadcasting studio like um you know that scenario uh, where like police will get like beset by calls about a specific thing rather than admit it's something that they don't have information on and like rather than like being like, oh, 
well, hang on, we'll get more information about that and get back to you. They go, we should look like we're doing something productive. Yes. Yeah, like there was that one time, uh, the first time I ever got pulled over was on like a military base. And an hour before I had been pulled over, someone had run through that intersection and hit an enlisted personnel yeah. in the crosswalk. So the next two people through that intersection, regardless of what they were doing, were pulled over so that they could, the police could look like they were doing something. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> they're like, we need to look proactive. Let's go storm the CBS broadcasting studio and look like we're doing something. So the police, while the police were getting swamped with these calls, uh, stories of people doing anything beyond that were believed, they're believed by contemporary researchers to have been reported by the people who were panicking after the fact. So there's all the stories of people that are like, We've, they ran, people ran from their houses and they spent their life savings on a train ticket to get away from the cities. And by the time they realized we're far away from the cities, they realized that it had been a hoax. Those stories were likely being told by the people themselves. Like kind of, you start telling a story and like- You exaggerate a little bit yeah. in order to make it seem more believable. Yeah, and, this, and especially once news articles began circulating, people saw that as an opportunity to tell that story that would connect them to a major source of news, and then each time telling it, it would get more exaggerated. We all know that person who tells a story about a fish they caught, where the first time they tell the story, it's a little windy on the boat, and the fish was pretty big, and then 10 beers later, the it was a Category 5 hurricane, and it was the shark from Jaws. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We definitely know that most of the stories and casualties and mayhem were greatly exaggerated or just plain made up because later investigations into like traffic numbers at hospitals during that time showed a completely different story than was being written in the headlines. For example, uh, there were no admissions for shock at the Newark hospital during the night of the broadcast, despite what a bunch of newspapers says, nor did any of the hospitals in New York report a spike in admissions that night. And while there were several attempts at death by suicide, they were prevented by friends and family, and there is no record of a successful death by suicide during that time that is connected with this See, broadcast. And that's what I always heard was that like hundreds of people... Yeah completed suicide yeah yeah that's like i remember growing up here i'm like so like people died and there was panic and like stampedes in the street and uh, there were i also grew up hearing that there were reports that like this broadcast caused the fcc to completely redesign the broadcasting industry It, it didn't the fcc did not punish wells or cbs They also barred complaints about this specific broadcast from being brought up during license renewal discussion. Not only did they not punish them, they were like, yeah, they were like, you can't punish them now and you can't punish them later. (laughs) Media historians Jefferson Pooley and Michael Sokolo wrote, Janet Jackson's 2004 wardrobe malfunction remains far more significant in the history of broadcast regulation than Orson Welles' trickery. And that's accurate. Because yeah. they FCC did change rules after that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Probably the biggest proponent of the mass hysteria was the newspaper industry. Uh, the newspaper industry was likely facing increased pressure by the increasing popularity of radio as an informational medium. So they latched onto their opportunity to collect sporadic reports of individual confusion about a spooky radio broadcast and then string them together into a narrative of mass hysteria and mayhem. Uh, at the hands of their rival uh-huh. competitor in the radio. 
Yep. The newspapers were reporting the suicide attempts, heart attacks, mass panic, people fleeing from their homes in waves. There was bad journalism. Yeah, it was bad journalism. There was a headline in the New York Daily News that read, fake radio war stirs terror throughout U.S. And it was accompanied by a photo of a woman with her arm in a sling who supposedly, according to the article, broke it as she fell while fleeing her apartment after the show segment about the poison gas. Most of the mass hysteria was the newspaper industry being like, ooh, ha, we can use this. And then by the time actual information comes back that, hey, none of this is true, the news, like the headlines are like, yeah, but we've moved on. We're not going to print a retraction. Who does that? Yeah. (laughs) So of the listeners of the broadcast, uh, there were those who listened from the beginning and knew it was fiction. And then there were those who missed the opening introduction. And that second group can be broken down thusly. You had the people who initially thought it was real, but they kept listening through that first broadcast break and heard the second announcement knew it was fiction, and they stopped panicking. They may have initially called the police, but then it didn't go any further than that. Then you have the people who initially thought it was real, but if they were regular show listeners, they may have recognized the voices of the actors and figured it out and stopped Mm -hmm. panicking. Then you had book nerds who got spooked initially, but then who were like, wait a minute, I recognize this story. They've changed some stuff, but this is H.G. Wells. And they stopped panicking. And then finally, you have the people who thought it was real, stopped listening, and proceeded to do something stupid that they were later embarrassed by. So they covered their embarrassment by leaning into it and blaming Wells and CBS and giving their account to the newspapers to blow out of proportion. While also saying that they weren't the only ones who did this really incredibly stupid thing. I heard, like, I ran out of my house and I heard my cousin, sister's friend, uh, sold all their furniture so that they could afford a train ticket and then jumped in front of the train. And then, and then I also heard, and I'm telling the newspapers, I heard all this. Yeah. So, uh, in the end, the reason the mass hysteria story has persisted is because there was a small group of people that were so embarrassed but they had an overreaction to being tricked by a fictional radio play that when the print media went, aha, a chance to make radio look stupid and dangerous, these people went, aha, a chance to blame the radio for making me look stupid. (laughs) So regardless of how much of the mass panic was legitimate and how much of it has been exaggerated, the 1938 War of the World's radio broadcast has definitely been cemented as a part of American media history, and it obviously continues to be something that people talk about and now celebrate. It was something that uh, Wells himself, he let him secure fame as a dramatist, and he used that notoriety to then later achieve film greatness. He's one of the greatest, I don't know, actors, directors, writers. He's done it all, and he's really good. (laughs) Yeah. Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air were inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame in 1988 on the 50th anniversary of the broadcast. Uh, There have been numerous re-airings, adaptations, and parodies of the broadcast. My favorite parody is the Pinky and the Brain episode, Battle for the Planet, (laughs) (laughs) where the brain was like, ah, Orson Welles almost did it, but imagine if he had had the power of television. Uh, it's one of my favorite. It's my favorite episode. Uh, and then, of course, the New Jersey township of uh, West Windsor and the unincorporated community of Grover's Mill. There is a historical marker named Martian Landing Site that commemorates the broadcast and was erected on the broadcast 50th anniversary. It's a very cool. It's a very cool statue. It's like etched with uh, like a UFO and people crowded around a radio. It's just a very cool tablet. I like it a lot. 
I want to leave you with the final speech of the broadcast that Orson Welles gave at the conclusion. Uh, this is after the show is over and he's broken character and is talking directly to the audience. It is one of my favorite quotes of all time. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen, out of character to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying, boo, starting now, we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow night. So we did the next best thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody. And remember the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch. And if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween. I like it. Yeah. So that's the Panic Broadcast of 1938. Uh, My sources, obviously, Wikipedia. The Smithsonian Magazine article, The Infamous War of the World's Radio Broadcast, was a magnificent fluke by A. Brad Schwartz. This Day in History, history history.com article, uh, How the War of the World's Radio Broadcast Created a National Panic by Christopher Klein. NPR had an article 75 years ago, War of the World Started a Panic, or Did It? by Mark Memet. (laughs) And let's see, by Vanya Jaksik on CBC, uh, How Orson Welles' 1930s War of the World's Radio Adaptation Went Viral. And then obviously the New York Times article from Halloween of 1938. I feel lied to by the newspaper <laughs> industry, and that's why I choose television broadcasts now that radio broadcasts. Television are dead. never lies to me. <laughs> yeah, it's just was one of my it's one of my favorite things to read about and to write about, and this is fun. Really, you did a really good job. I when you're on the Wikipedia and it like it lists all the parodies that happened of it and like all the rebroadcasts and stuff of it. There was one thing on there that I completely forgot about until I read it on there. It was the only thing listed under alternate versions. And it was like kind of an alternate history in which, okay, the movie was called Buckaroo Banzai Adventures Across the Eighth Dimension. It's one of those science fiction movies that's so terrible, it's wonderful. And it stars a very, 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 very young Jeff Goldblum. And the premise of that movie is that the alien invasion and war of the worlds was real. And Orson Welles and CBS were like contracted by the government to insist that it was fiction to cover it up. Interesting. And that was the basis of the Buckaroo Banzai movie because the, I don't remember, it's been a while since I've watched it, but that was so bad. It's, it's I don't know if they intended it to be hilarious, but it's hilarious. <laughs> da, 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 da. So this was our Halloween episode. Happy Halloween! Where can people find us? Uh, If people want to write to us, if they have questions, comments, concerns, stories they want to share, sweet nothings they want to creepily type to us, uh, pretending they're whispering in our ear, we might ignore (laughs) the the last ones, uh, but we will read them if you email them to trulyfabulouslymonstrous at gmail.com. We also have an Instagram at truly fabulously monstrous and if you want to come hang out on twitter we have one of those at tfab monster pod 
Yeah. So join us next, uh, this upcoming Tuesday for our regularly scheduled program. And I think at that point, Ace will be telling it's Boopy. <laughs> we'll be there. We hope you will too. Bye. Bye.